Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast for Psychology 382. Today, we'll be talking about the Savant and Assault, Alice in Wonderland Syndrome, the space around us, and perception and action. We will be talking about key ma- or key points and ideas, as well as uh, the readings and stuff that was taken from lecture and the readings as well. Joining me today is my friend Justin, my friend Madeline, and my brother Michael. Um, Justin and Madeline have both taken the Intro to Psychology course here and they have taken uh, anatomy as well as biology courses and then michael is a psychology major and he's taken a few psychology courses as well so their knowledge base is more in the biological aspect of things as opposed to psychological Um, but they will be adding in a good amount of input and a new take on things um, for psychology which i hope will further the conversation about these topics Uh, each of them have done the assigned readings so i'm I feel like it'll be a very good and uh, beneficial um, podcast. All right, guys. So now that we have gotten introductions out of the way and I've introduced you to um, Professor and most likely the Psychology 382 class, if they would ever hear this. So I gave you guys and sent you guys out uh, four or five readings that was specifically about being a savant or other perceptual type of readings that would link to what a savant is. Um, So what I'm gonna do first is get your guys' honest opinions about the readings, uh, considering that you guys have very little, if any, psychology background, and majority of you are related to the healthcare field or bio field. So uh, Michael, if you would like to go first, please give me your honest opinion about um, the readings and what you thought they were. Sure. So my honest opinions of this reading, um, going into it, I only ever knew of savantism and savant from the classical movie Rain Man, in which the brother was able to read cards and remember the cards, remember the order sequence. And so that was the only thing that I really knew about savantism. I never realized that it was sort of a learned or unconscious part of the brain that was activated, as with John Paget, um, he was in quote unquote in his own words in the article was a complete loser and just learning about how that this unconscious part of the brain led to basically genius IQ when it came to fractals and math was just insane to me. Mm-hmm. And I I thought it was really interesting too because I also have seen Rain Man and I've learned about Savantism from that. And when I started reading about John Paget's case, when he got hit in the head and all of a sudden he started seeing and interpreting all these fractal designs and even being able to draw them out by hand, it amazed me because he really had nothing going for him. And he changed his life around and he got into mathematics and he got eyed out by a lot of mathematicians for this gift that he had. And it made me think about initially how when somebody loses a what is the word i'm looking for loses a sense so let's say someone becomes blind or someone loses the ability to use their arms they become vastly better at hearing at feeling at just interpreting their surroundings in a different sense and i didn't know since he hit his head in this scenario i didn't know if that had anything to do with that maybe it knocked a part of his brain maybe activated that unconscious part of it and i'm not sure if that was what it was but we i'm glad to talk about that yeah and um 
unlike Michael and Justin, I didn't really have, I've never seen the movie Rain Man, so I don't really have any knowledge of savantism or any of what it is at all. So going into this, I was kind of blind, but now um, knowing a lot more about it, it's really, really interesting, especially, you know, John Paget, how his whole life basically sort of changed. He went, you know, like Justin said, from this nobody and then completely shifted into, you know, kind of having to adapt this whole new world to himself, you know, going from something completely different, living a normal life in that sort of sense. And then um, a complete change is really, really crazy. So, yeah. All great input. Thank you guys. Um, so there is a sort of common theme that happens with savants. Actually, there's two common themes, a lesser known theme and one uh, theme that people sort of attribute to savants. So the first more known theme with savants is that majority of them, um, or when you think of a savant, you tend to think that they suffer from some sort of neurological or cognitive disorder that they were born with. What I mean, or and they've gotten diagnosed with. What I mean by this is you tend to think a savant may have autism or maybe on, maybe on the autism spectrum disorder, or they have Asperger's. That's not necessarily the case. Uh, so what it is actually is that any one of us could become a savant. We just need to go through some sort of head trauma. Head trauma is the main key factor which separates us from people who are savants. In the case of John Paget or even Derek Amato, they experienced some form of head trauma that allowed them to access that specific part of their brain. For John Paget's case, it was the um, ability to see fractals and see the world through pixel, like pixelate, more pixelated than us, and see it through math. For Derek Amato, he was able to unlock a form of synesthesia, which allowed him to see black and white squares in his visual field and become an expert at playing the piano. Um, the whole idea of a savant is a genius. It's someone who is really, 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 really well suited into their field, but it's more or less a false flag. They're not necessarily a genius. They just have an ability to focus on to focus their brains on one specific area and excel in that area, whether it is unconsciously or consciously. So I have a question when it comes to savantism and stuff. So people that have a photographic memory and are able to recall almost near perfect anything with visual memorization, when it comes to reading a book and being like able to recall what's being written down word for word, or even when it comes to studying for a study guide for an exam, able to recall everything. Is that a form of savantism or no? No. When you get into memory, that's not necessarily savantism because with savants, it's happening in real time. They're not recalling back on previous events they have learned. Memory may play a part in it, but it's not the overarching factor when it comes to savants. It's something that has to happen to them in real time. Um, a good example is a woman was able to smell Parkinson, Parkinson's disease. And we'll touch on more on that when we get to uh, synesthesia, but she was able to associate a specific order with Parkinson's and get the number of correct people who had Parkinson's. I believe it was like a 12 out of 12. So um, going off of what we just said about this idea that we may have all of, uh, that we may be able to unlock the ability to become a savant, what is your guys' take on that? Um, the fact that we have to experience it through some sort of head trauma. So my first thought is actually a funny saying that I've heard a lot from a lot of people when I was younger and growing up, and it's more of a colloquial term. And I don't know if this has any 
meaning or history with savant syndrome but i don't know if you're familiar with the phrase oh you got dropped on your head as you were a kid does that have any roots in the historically with savant syndrome historically it might but i know that uh colloquial term is more associated with um calling out someone's weirdness or even uniqueness not necessarily savantism um but head trauma like i've said before is a very like big key factor in what makes us um be able to become a savant you may become an expert in your field but specifically with savants they see the world and perceive the world in that specific set of pattern i have a question so what do you think because you said a lot of savants are very closely related with having autism or Asperger's or any kind of um, that sort of situation. What do you think makes people link that so closely to that type of um, disorder, I guess, is like, because I know a lot of people with autism usually have um, bad, you know, or lack social cues and, you know, kind of like seeing those and um, interpreting them. So what do you think makes people link, you know, a savant and also someone who has autism. Yeah, so the reason that those on the uh, autism spectrum disorder or somebody with a neuro, um, neurological disorder or cognitive disorder may be closely linked to savants, maybe even be a savant, is they perceive the world differently than we do. Um, what makes us normal is because we all perceive the world simil similarly and we all function normally on a cognitive level. Um, the reason that someone who has autism may be more susceptible to becoming a savant is because they're already neurologically uh, positioned in a different way than we are to perceive the world and take in information. So they may be able to access a part of their brain that we're not able to because they were born that way. So when it comes to savantism and stuff, you said that it can be learned or gained through head trauma. My first thought is, oh, okay, that's awesome, being able to uh, act in real time in certain situations that you're not, you weren't able to before. That seems amazing to me. But second thought, not actually, because what of the other sort of neurological problems that can be come along with the savantism, such as certain neurological diseases, lacking in uh, certain motor functions that you weren't able to do. There's a lot associated with head trauma that can lead to the unknown. Yep. It's, it's really like winning the lottery with get, becoming a savant through head trauma and becoming like, like going through that unscathed, not having any other issues. Um, that's actually a very interesting topic that I'm not fully uh, educated on to touch on if there is any other issues linked with it. Um, but moving forward, I did touch on previously about synesthesia and exactly what synesthesia may entail. So it is the production of a sense impression related to one sense or part of the body by stimulation, by stimulation, stimulation of another sense or part of the body. Um, so basically what that means is you perceive information through one part of the body and you output it through another external source or another sense. So for instance, you think you see things in the visual field, you perceive it and then output it in the auditory field or even through um, the use of your fingers or hands or by touch. Michael, I know you're in a psychology class, so what's your take on synesthesia? It sounds sort of similar to what a lot of patients experience when under the effect of psychedelics. Uh, they have a lot of auditory or visual hallucinations into which they interpret that through their different senses and different perceptions. Um, so to me, it's 
that's what synesthesia sounds very, very familiar like. But I know it's not at the same time. Because even though they're able to perceive these sort of visual cues or auditory cues, they're not able to output it on a different sense. So funnily or funny enough, there was a, a guy that was able to take a cocktail of drugs and smell the world differently and smell colors differently. And his sense of smell was just completely heightened by his cocktail of drugs. So he was able to unlock becoming a savant for a short period of time. Unfortunately, that was temporary and he was able to, he did lose it, but it's, I guess you could call it sort of becoming a temporary savant, not permanent through head trauma. So there are other outlets where you can become a savant, but synesthesia does play um, pretty well into becoming a savant. In the case, the case of Derek Amato, seeing these black and white squares and then outputting them through playing the piano, or the woman who is able to smell Parkinson's. Again, she associated a specific odor with Parkinson's disease and was able to actually sniff out Parkinson's on, a, on I believe, two people before they were even diagnosed with Parkinson's, uh, which is kind of amazing. Now, when someone becomes a savant, they seem to have a change or shift in personality. Um, they're different from who they once were. Uh, John Paget, Derek Amato, anybody who becomes a savant and accesses a different part of their brain than how we normally access it seems to also have a shift in their behavior and personality. What is your guys' takes on this based on the reading that we have touched on? I've actually, I saw this even through the reading, whether it was stated outright or even just through the context of which I was reading, because kind of touching back to the Rain Man subject, when John Paget hit his head and he became a different person, it didn't seem like when he became a different person, it doesn't seem like he got a good talking to by somebody and then decided to change his life around. It decided that he internally wanted something different. So before he was chasing girls, he had nothing else on his mind. He was getting drunk every night, not working as much as he should have. And then after the incident, he became very attuned to these fractals and he just felt like he had a different course in life. He had different needs. He had different wants. So it seemed like it almost changed him fundamentally who he was into a different person. Yeah, I agree. I think that is something that is really kind of insane. And I think it's something that's also very hard for us, you know, human beings to like kind of comprehend in our own minds that something like that can happen just from a head trauma you know you think when you think of head trauma you think of you know an injury and you know that sort of thing you know you get a few stitches maybe you know a little surgery something like that but when it changes something neurologically that we can't see and affects someone wholly as like an entire person and shifts their entire you know personality and the way they go about things and everything like that it's really I feel like a huge concept for us to grasp. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It is a, a very big concept for us to grasp. Um, I know that the people who are under the effects of psychedelics uh, can have this inward experience where they're able to better themselves and change themselves right then and there. And they've associated with that with talking to themselves internally in whatever shape that may be. Um, so I guess savantism or becoming a savant is the same way pretty much. It's, you are able to see the world differently and perceive it differently through, through um, accessing another part of your brain that you wouldn't normally access. And in turn, it changes how you interact with others on a day-to-day -day basis. 
So when it comes to Savantism and talking about Savant and how it changed your personality and it changed John Pagas, well, Derek Amato's personality, it makes me think, does it have to do in relation to the super ego, ego, and id? Because your id is your primal, your ego is the balance between your super ego and your id, and the super ego bases on a societal construct about how your brain acts consciously and subconsciously. So when that shift in personality happens, does that ego essentially diminish to let the id and the superego take over? Well, what's what's your take on it? I think our personality is it's not just uh, you know an, an uh, innate behavior that we have or innate function. It's definitely learned through the environment. I mean, in the case of these select individuals, they are having an automatic personality shift where everything they may have learned and experienced is coming to a, is coming into play, but it's being reevaluated to change who they are. So what's your take on the super ego, ego in it? I feel like the ego is definitely shifting away to allow for a play more into the super ego as well as the id. Um, and I think it has a lot, it does have a lot to do with the brain trauma as well as this, the damage that they suffer on a, a neurological level. So when it comes to the whole savantism, I do think that when it comes with a head injury and all that, when the personality shift happens, it has to do with your ego being shifted to allow for your super ego as well as it to come in and basically take a play, take over. I guess you could associate that with a different neurological and cognitive pathway that you're accessing. So think of our brain as a specific roadmap and direction that we use where, you know, we, one pathway goes left, right, left, right, left, right, until you get an action while those under, um, who are, who may be a savant or who may have autism or Asperger's or some other neurological disorder, their pathway is different from ours. So it's not necessarily, you know, that they're taking a wrong route or anything, but definitely everything that you've centered on that main original pathway, and then you experience another different pathway neurologically. I mean, I could see the personality shift to be totally honest, because it's like you have your whole life set on this one pathway that you use, and then you have an automatic shift, whether that's through head trauma or taking a huge cocktail of drugs or whatever it may be, and that changes you. It really, it, it has to change you neurologically because you're experiencing a different perspective and side of life that you wouldn't normally experience just being, I guess, quote unquote, normal, if that makes sense. It does. Um, so this was a very great talk about being a savant and savant of the soul, but we are going to move on and next we'll be talking about Alice in Wonderland syndrome. And we're back. So we're going to be talking about Alice in Wonderland syndrome and Alice in Wonderland like syndrome. So basically Alice in Wonderland syndrome is this uh, syndrome that people are perceiving parts of their body to be changing size. So for example, your feet may, may suddenly appear smaller or your tongue may be bigger than what it's supposed to be. Um, for Alex, Alice in Wonderland-like syndrome, people misperceive the size and distance of objects. They see them as startlingly larger, smaller, fatter, or thinner than their 
natural or original state, which is how we would normally perceive it. So they may see a cup as being two to five inches bigger than what it's supposed to be, even though it's right next to you, or they may see it as super small than how it's supposed to be, again, when it is directly right next to you, and we're not saying that it's, you know, five, ten feet away, because obviously that would change your perception of the size of the object. That's a whole other different topic. So starting with Alice in Wonderland Syndrome and the, was it two to three readings, I believe, on, about. The, on the topic. Um, so, Michael, what was your opinion about the readings? So my honest opinion, uh, since I myself am in a psychedelic psychology class, I immediately started to associate it with some of the experiences that some of the patients have well under the psychedelics. Um, I'll touch into this a little bit later on, but that was immediately what I started thinking of and what I started comparing it to when hearing about AWS as well as AWLS. I, when I looked at it, I started to think back to, I started to think back not to see like if I've ever seen this or just to try to perceive how this could even be a thing. So when I look at this, I think back to if we are driving or if we are running and when we stop, we have that moment um, of the entire world kind of expanding or moving around you. That's how I perceived it instead of it being, and I read this and I recognized that this is a more localized, localized case where only one object or maybe one or two things are enlarging or thinning. And so I kind of wanted to look into that a little bit. Yeah, I definitely had lots and lots of questions after reading over the articles and, you know, getting more information about it and everything like that. And obviously you can clearly understand where the name comes from. And instantly, you know, I thought of like psychedelics and drugs and that type of thing too. But um, hopefully we can touch on a couple of questions, you know, that I feel like we all similarly have together. But other than that, I think the topic is just crazy. It's a really, really um, crazy concept. So diving right into it, uh, what would you say the symptoms associated specifically with AWS is and how does that differ from AWLS? I'm going to be asking that question to Michael first and then obviously I will follow up after. So, so for AWS, the symptoms associated with it is the patient uh, has the perception that the body parts are getting bigger when physically the body parts are not actually getting bigger. Um, with AWLS, it's can it's uh, that they're seeing objects or seeing distances starting to get larger, smaller, fatter, or thinner in like their natural state. And the biggest thing is that it doesn't happen on a physical level. It happens on a perceptual level. So uh, the doctor that in the article who studied this, Dr. Liu, he specifically said that the patient themselves, their body parts were not getting larger or smaller, or the wall wasn't getting larger or smaller. They were perceiving this. This is similar to in psychedelics when somebody goes under the effect of LSD or under the effect of psilocybin, they have this perception. It's, it's called Alice in Wonderland syndrome or an Alice in Wonderland experience in which they get larger or smaller or they see people as larger or smaller. And one of the biggest things was uh, there was a patient who in Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, he was 
given little one inch figurines and he's this six foot tall person and he was able to feel every little portion of the figurine every little detail and he pictured himself as the size of the one inch he perceived himself as the size of the one inch figurine so when a researcher came in to check on him he cowered behind that figurine and he immediately got completely scared of the researcher because he saw the researcher as just ginormous or is the other way around that they see themselves as giants and the researchers as smaller so this is similar to uh, Alice in Wonderland syndrome but with Alice in Wonderland syndrome it's not the entire body it's parts of the body so uh, one person said that their tongue they perceived it as getting larger or they perceived their hands as getting smaller and that's sort of what the symptoms are Alrighty, um, I would have to agree that AWS and AWLS, the symptoms um, that they were experiencing linked more so to what you might experience under an LSD, peyote, um, ketamine, or even psilocybin trip. Uh, going off of my psychedelics and psychology class that Michael is taking currently, um, I do remember learning about a person who experienced the world or a different world, but as a giant, he thought he was more than six feet tall to say the least. I can't remember the specific number, but he lived through that world as a giant would. But again, that was his whole body. And with AWS, it's only parts of the body or one part of the body. And with AWLS, it seems to be more of a localized object or, um, group of objects that are closely together, not multiple different objects across a room, all changing size at once, like it would be under a type of um, drug trip. But the more interesting thing is that stuck out to me is that AWS and AWLS start occurring around eight years old on average, and specifically within the age range of five to 10. Now, why do we think that is? Because that to me is a major key point to focus on. Psychedelics and those who are going under that trip may have experienced a temporary form of AWS or AWLS, or just may have been tripping and hallucinating and going and experiencing that. We're all adults or you know around that age and they were all varying in different age ranges, but they were specifically adults. So their brains have already been developed, but the five to 10 year olds, specifically around eight years old is when it happens their brains aren't fully developed. So I guess the question is, does that make them more susceptible to get AWS and AWLS? And Justin, I will get your take on this. Uh, thinking about that, of course, just as we grow older, these are my ideas, just as we grow older, we reach puberty. And that actually occurs just after this age range, but this age range specifically five to 10 and specifically eight years old, is a very interesting time because at least from my experience, it's when I can remember back to when I started perceiving and remembering a lot of my conscious decisions and actions. So my thought on this is that I think that around this age, the brain is starting to become conscious of itself and it might not necessarily be conscious of its surroundings as much as it is starting to itself. So what it could be happening is that it starts to perceive other things as larger or smaller in the Alice in Wonderland or Alice in Wonderland like syndrome case. But in terms of the Alice in Wonderland syndrome case, that could be just a, a more, not severe, but a more developed case of AWLS. Because the way that I see these two 
is that AWLS was is the kind of overall term of it, and AWLS is a down the pipeline term of it because we as humans work inward and out. We're gonna see ourselves as different before we see the world as different. I would I would most definitely have to agree with that. Uh, the one thing that stuck out to me was that no tumors or head injuries are the cause for AWS or AWLS. So I guess it would just occur sort of naturally, but unnaturally because it was more naturally than everybody in the world would be documented with AWS or AWLS, but more unnaturally because it is again, rare cases. So I don't specifically know if these kids have some sort of genetic disposition that would cause them to have AWS or AWLS, but what I do know is psychologically, when you are growing up, you will experience a thing called synaptic pruning, which is basically all the pathways that your brain can take start getting lesser and shorter and start canceling out till it's one specific pathway, which is a prime example of why it's harder to learn language as an adult compared to a child is because you've been synaptically pruned to only experience that one pathway. Now with those suffering AWS, uh, those experiencing AWS or AWLS, um, they may be somatically pruned to experience this syndrome. Um, and that to me is just what truly sticks out and what could be an explanation for this um, cognitive disorder that they're um, undergoing right now. Now, what are your guys' thoughts on this? So as you were talking about synaptic pruning, does this, so AWLS and AWS, does this, it occurs in five to 10 year olds, but does it stay with them for the rest of their life? No, AWLS and AWS doesn't technically stay with the five or 10 year olds for the rest of their life. Um, most of them tend to go out of it. And is everybody familiar with the stages of cognitive development? Yes. Yes. So as Patrick was saying, he doesn't know exactly why this has happened. And uh, Dr. Liu was saying in his research that he was doing, it AWS and AWLS doesn't present any neurological symptoms. So it doesn't become present on fMRIs, MRIs, or CT scans. It's only by the same symptoms that each of these uh, pediatric patients were having when they came to Dr. Liu. Now, my thought on this is it's a gap between the pre-operational and the concrete operational stage. And that pre-operational is two to seven years old, concrete operational is seven to 11 years old. Since most of the patients fall within the five to 10 year old range, there is a gap or pathway that the brain is taking that is not normal to what most humans take or experience. So I guess we can all agree then that as opposed to neurological, Pardon me, I got that wrong previously. It's more of a cognitive developmental issue that takes place. And obviously it is temporary. So I guess what we could go off of is that it's an issue that arises when they're sh when these kids are shifting from one stage to the next. Yeah, I think that definitely makes much more sense when you put it in those sort of terms and kind of similar, similar to what Justin was explaining too, I can think back to just myself at such a young age between five and 10. And you don't really know what certain things mean or how things work at that age yet. You're still kind of just going about, you know, probably just now getting a hold of like your conscience and, you know, stuff like that. So you don't really know how things work, how, you know, um, all types of stuff, you know, go and things like that. So I think 
it's almost your brain kind of trying to catch up to that kind of stage to where you are almost reaching, you know, puberty and everything like that. So it's sort of your brain trying to like make up for it. And so I think there's just a lot going on at that time, you know, that your brain is still young, but also still trying to um, closely develop. Touching on what Maddie said, uh, with the whole part of your brain being young and this is what you know, you don't really know too much. What was really interesting to me in the article was how a lot of the patients thought of this as normal. They didn't think of this as being an anomaly or abnormal and they start, they didn't freak out about it. They just thought of this as normal and they're like, oh, well, it'll go away. So what makes me think is that this has to do on a subconscious part of the brain for perception that deals with conscious. So there's the shift. They, it's, it's associated with their conscious part as what they perceive as normal in everyday life. So very great input, by the way. Uh, for both of you guys and for Justin as well. Um, but I'm going to shift the topic away from AWS and AWLS and go on this idea of perception. And I'm going to shift the topic to the perception of time and why it's inaccurate and healthy people. So I don't know if you guys did the reading for this article, but basically uh, Heather Berlin spoke to a group of what was considered healthy people and what was considered unhealthy people about their orbital frontal cortex, or she spoke with healthy people and unhealthy people who had orbital frontal cortex lesions, and she gave them a time perception test. And she found, and she was trying to see if brain injury made a difference. So she found that healthy brains see time more inaccurately, and unhealthy brains have time, or perceive time as more accurately. Um, this to me, really stuck out because to know that I perceive time inaccurately makes sense based off my own personal experience. But at the same time, it kind of was, you know, a, a kick in the gut sort of moment where I'm not actually perceiving time accurately, but it's both a good thing and a bad thing because historically and evolutionary, if you were to see time accurately, you're living in the moment, which means that you're not able to slow yourself down and calm yourself down under stressful situations. The reason that we actually see time inaccurately is because we're able to better act under pressure. It's how we're able to calm ourselves down under pressure. So people who have a cognitive disorder or a brain injury that see time accurately closer to the 90 seconds or exactly on 90 seconds when you're counting, they're not able to act calm under pressure because of that brain injury, because of their inaccurate perception. What do you guys think about this topic specifically, Justin? So my first take on this is if it's relating to the orbital frontal cortex, hum us as humans evolutionarily do have a bigger frontal cortex and that does come with our evolutionary traits of being more invested cerebrally than a lot of other, and cognitively than a lot of other animals. And my first take is that Normally, when we are having fun, time flies by. And that comes from humans' ability to play and entertain themselves. However, sorry to interrupt, Justin, um, but it was actually very interesting about what you were saying with Q 
kids or people experiencing a fun event and time is flying by. Um, the reason that we have an inaccurate perception of time is all because of a neurotransmitter called neuropeptide Y or NPY for short. So we have more of this neurotransmitter or healthy people have more of this neurotransmitter, which is why we experience time inaccurately. So you can see um, time is either going slower, faster than how it should be because of this neurotransmitter, which is also why it can help us remain calm under immense stress or pressure. I know, Michael, you have a key point that you want to talk about for stress or pressure. Right. So when the human body tends to go under pressure, under stress, your sympathetic nervous system tends to release adrenaline in response to this, which increases your heart rate, it increases a lot more aspects of the body to be heightened and to be prepared for whatever fight or flight moment is ahead of you. Now, a lot of the participants when being talked to by Heather Berlin were under this pressure. So their parasympathetic nervous system released uh, or helped to limit the adrenaline that was released in the body to help calm them down. So this could lead to an increase in neurotransmitter neuropeptide Y which causes them to misperceive time since they are more relaxed and more calm. Now, when talking about patients who have brain damage or brain injuries, there must be an error in their parasympathetic nervous system that doesn't allow for the lessening of the sympathetic nervous system that is in healthy people because with they're, they're becoming more accurate when they're uh, perceiving time more. And to follow up, and also piggyback off your point, Michael, I, I was going to go into two talking about octopi as they're quite intelligent for marine life. And if my stats are correct, the third most intelligent, if not fourth most intelligent animal on this earth. And it was found in studies that when octopi did not have something to do, they would pick up objects or bottles around the cage that they were in and start to play with it and engage their brain. And so what I was going to say is that maybe evolutionarily, as we become more cognitively developed and our thirst for um, cerebral stimulation increases, maybe we start to evolutionarily develop something that makes us perceive time to be faster. Um, and this would affect humans a lot more because as humans, we are the top of the food chain, we're the most dominant species on the earth, and therefore we are the most relaxed on top. And so maybe that had a hand in making us perceive time to be slower or faster or more inaccurate. So I guess because of this increased amount of neuropeptide Y, uh, what we have actually evolutionary evolutionarily caused us to become more calmer as a species. And that could open a gateway and a bunch of doors as to why we could be overthrowing the dominant part of the food chain eventually because we're too calm of a species and deal too well under pressure or stress and we don't have that you know immense fight or flight and adrenaline rush that would be seen in other um lesser evolved species um but one thing i wanted to touch on is for my basic knowledge uh evolutionary wise our biological clock and how we perceive time is more akin to 25 to 26 hour days, not 24 hour days. It actually has to deal with age too. Uh, this comes from a book about, or that's called why we sleep or why we need sleep by Matthew Walker. And basically it's talking about, you know, the cognitive and psychological reasons about 
why sleep is very, very important to our body. But I just thought it was an interesting, you know, touch on for our perception of time that we live closer to 26 hour days, which is why we could also be perceiving time more inaccurately is because biologically we're, we're closer to these longer days than the 24 hour day cycle that we came up with or that we seem to go by, which would also make sense and play into, um, this whole idea of daylight savings and the sun rising and setting at different times. But again, this is a different, that's a completely different topic. I just wanted to relate that to the topic that we're talking about at hand. And then the next topic that we are going to go into is the space around us. And we will be back shortly. Hi everyone. So this is just a quick disclaimer. Um, Justin will not be joining us uh, to further the conversation in the topic, the space around us, and he'll only be there for the intro section of perception and action. This is because Justin is an RA, so he was forced to go do um, stuff related to his job. Nonetheless, his contribution to the other or the previous two topics have been um, very beneficial to this podcast. And I hope in the future, if I decide to do another podcast again, that he will be joining us as well. I hope you guys enjoyed his um, topics that he's brought up and the information he's shared with you. And yeah, I just wanted to put in this quick disclaimer. Hi everyone, we're back. Today we'll be talking about the space around us as our third topic, specifically what um, a brain map is, what peripersonal space is, um, how does our brain map play into personal space, and then with this idea of brain and body maps and personal space, how this has changed across country and culture and even varies among different animals. Um, so to start off, Michael, will you give us your honest opinion of the articles that you read? Sure. So I thought the articles were really interesting because we all have this idea of what personal space is and how it pertains to how we approach everyday life. But what really struck me as most intriguing was how we associate certain objects that aren't conscious, don't have life into this idea of personal space. So, for example, uh, of a car. Right? We treat our car, some people would treat it like their own child, some people would not. But anytime we are in a car, we feel at comfort, we feel at home, we feel at peace in that car. And it really irritates us or gets us mad when the car is damaged in any way because it seems like it's a, an attack at our own selves. So this was really interesting because I never really associated objects inside our everyday lives that we would like put our own personal space into it. Yeah, I agree also with that too. I thought it was really intriguing um, with that, how we associate it into our own, you know, sort of like personal area and everything like that. And also um, much of the research done with stroke patients and how theirs has changed um, upon, you know, having their stroke and everything like that. And just everybody, each individual has their own, unique sort of, um, you know, personal uh, bubble like that. Yep. So those are both very interesting takeaways. And I'm going to actually respond to Michael's first. So the reason that we have um, the car or even like a tool becoming an extension of our body is due to uh, body and brain maps. So they're basically mental maps, which 
our brain tells where exactly things are within that space and time, and even how far it is away from our body. This is why, say, during the day you can navigate around a group of objects freely, but even at night you can still kind of navigate around it because you're relying on that brain map and not necessarily your visual, um, like your field of vision. Also, too, with this, it has to do with peripersonal space, which is just um, like the space that is within reach or the bubble around your body. So anything that's within reach um, from your body in and of itself. And what this is, what this stems from, and this whole idea of a brain and body map is due to uh, neurons that are they're bimodal, so they deal with tactical stimulation and even visual stimulation. So tactical is anything that you can touch or come into contact with. Visual is anything that is near that location on the skin. So it's like, for instance, the phone that is maybe even 10 inches away from me at this point of the recording, I can see it. If I reach out to it, I'm even closer to it, almost as if I know where it is and how far I need to reach to grab it. Now, that's everything within my brain and body map. So, um, question. So, you brought up the idea of even at night, how we're able to see or know where objects are around us. Well, that makes me wonder... So, for example, if you have a person in a room and you have certain objects laid about, right? Yeah. And then immediately you shut that light off after the person has had time to adjust to that area. Does that relate into personal space? Like, they still know where every single object is, how to navigate around it, and so forth? That would relate more to their brain and body map than personal space. We'll touch on personal space in a minute, because that's completely different. Um, That has to deal with Peripersonal space is like the depiction of objects near and close to you. Uh, Personal space has to deal with more like stress and anxiety levels and how comfortable you feel among other people and other things. Um, But body maps and brain maps are what depict how close or far things um, things are in relation to yourself. Okay. So... Uh, going off of this idea of seeing things at night, um, everything you hold within reach, even cars, for instance, become a part of your body map and can actually extend that body and brain map. So take, for instance, a blind person with their walking stick, and this is the one thing that's coming to my mind. They would use more tactical stimulation as opposed to visual because they obviously can't access the visual um, field due to them being blind and they're missing that perception and firing of neurons and whatever it may be. Um, But that walking stick becomes a part of themselves. It's almost like another extension of their body. Therefore, their body map and brain map are extent and their peripersonal peripersonal space are extended around that walking stick and encompasses it in and of itself. For a car, too, when we're driving a car, you know, you can go and park a car or you may get in an accident or something. You know everything and how close things are to your car because it becomes another extension of your body. So your space, like your bubble, expands to include those things that you have direct contact with. I just think the car example is really interesting because I know personally after driving your own car for a really long time, you begin to become so aware of, you know, the area and space around your car, you know, the dimensions of your car and everything. So, like, I think in one of the articles I talked about, like, when you're pulling into a parking spot, like, 
you're, you know, you know the area and, you know, dimensions of your car in that space. So, you know, if you're too close to another car or too close to, you know, like another object or that sort of thing. And then, you know, say you are driving someone else's car. You're not used to that area of space like yep. you are with your own. Yep. Even though we may not know the exact dimensions, like length, width, height of our height of our car, we do know uh, exactly how far away our car is compared to other cars, other people, mm-hmm. objects, whatever it may be. And the fact that we can park a car and fit it in between those two lines in a parking space is honestly amazing because we yeah. have no... I mean, the majority of car owners do not know how long, wide, or even tall their car is, yet we can all operate that vehicle and just guide it perfectly between the lines, park it perfectly, and know where things are in relation to that car, all due to our peripersonal space and what is absorbed and extended from that. So when it comes to cars and peripersonal space, in my own experience, so my dad has two different types of cars. He has a summer car and he has a winter car. And for the winter car, it's a massive, a giant GMC truck. And for a summer car, it's a small little convertible. When there is a shift between the summer and the winter car, especially in my own experience, after driving, say, in the summer, the convertible all summer, and then once the convertible is put away, driving the truck, it makes me feel uncomfortable and uneasy because I'm not used my, – my, my peripersonal space is changed completely. I'm not used to that big truck after – being used to a small little car all summer. Right, and that doesn't just have to do with how big the vehicle may be. It's going from the fact that a convertible is pretty low to the ground and a truck is pretty high up. So your position within the object and that environment, like your... Um, like how close you are to the ground has just shifted. So you have to get used to it, um, as with anything. A good point that Madeline put out is just how... Um, how it takes time to get used to someone's car that's not your own because when you bring that object within your body map and brain map and even your peripersonal space and it becomes an extension of yourself, you get comfortable with it and you get used to it, which is why you may have people get so comfortable with their car that they can just drive effortlessly or even say martial arts for that instance when a sword becomes an extension of your body, tennis when that tennis racket becomes an extension of your body. Um, you get so comfortable and used to it, but it takes time. It takes, it takes, you have to have more hands-on experience with that object. Whereas if you just pick it up, it's going to be comfortable. It's not going to be as comfortable as somebody who's gotten used to that over time. It has been with it for, I guess, years, I should say. Um, so thank you for sharing your guys' real life examples with brain maps and specifically, um, what it is now. How does this uh, idea of brain maps play into personal space? I know we touched on peripersonal space, but I mean personal space as in the blatant definition of what we know it as. Um, letting people get close to you, um, people invading what may, may be your bubble. And I'm talking about another object that can walk, move, feel, invading your bubble. So another person, I guess we should say, not an object. So this is very interesting to talk about because when talking about personal space and people who were to be in your personal space, I believe it has to do with the level of comfort and familiarity you have with the said person. So this would change from your family members to your friends to your girlfriend to complete strangers on the street. And it would have to do with the level of comfort. Like for my family members and for my girlfriend, for example, 
my personal space is not really of caring at all. I don't care who's in my personal space. And it has to do with my level of comfort compared to when there's a complete stranger on the street, I am more conscious and more aware of who is invading it. I think that's definitely true. Um, and also, I just feel like it's really interesting of what Michael said, you know, for example, um, when you have like a significant other, you know, you obviously start off meeting, you know, as strangers and you don't know them. So that personal space obviously is kind of like far in, you know, respect to like how, you know, close you are with them versus then, you know, progressing into them becoming, you know, your girlfriend or boyfriend. And then obviously that personal space becomes, you know, closer. You guys can be more intimate with one another. And it's not that, you know, like gap in between them. And then also, I just feel like um, in my personal opinion of personal space, it definitely differs from person to person. Some people are very comfortable with, you know, you know, others in their personal space and strangers and things like that. Um, and then you have other people who are completely like uncomfortable with it. And also like in different, you know, countries and cultures and everything like that, it definitely is just like a wide range of, you know, that level. Yep. So I do really agree with both of the um, comments and statements you guys have raised. Uh, but as to the cultural differences between different countries and even society, um, we'll get to that in a minute. What I want to touch on more so is personal space and how it plays into uh, brain maps. Obviously, brain maps, you have a set area of where you know the objects are in relation to your body. Um, and personal space is like you guys have both said, how it relates to somebody stepping into your zone of how comfortable you are. Um, so for instance, it has, or not for instance, it has to vary with size. Um, for instance, if you have, say, a, li a lizard that's only a couple inches long and a couple inches wide, you can get within a meter of it, and it until it runs away. Whereas a lion, a bear, um, or even a rhinoceros tend to be bigger animals, they have a larger range of personal space, so they're going to book it or they're going to fight back as soon as you enter their zone, which is which is going to be bigger than what the lizard is. Um, but what's different for humans is that we've gotten comfortable with each other as a species, so we can actually let the other person or enter our personal space, and even other species too, it's just that we'll be more of a aware of them, I guess, aware of their presence and keep a fixed gaze on them because they are this unknown, which would make us not as comfortable with them. Um, a good example is every guy knows this. It's the urinal study that they did and peeing in the urinal when you have um, another person either next to you or within your personal space. So not a lot of many people know, not a lot of people know this, but guys tend to have an unwritten rule in the bathroom where there's a space, there's three urinals, the middle one's not taken and the two on the sides are, and you leave that middle one untaken because it is this overlapping zone of personal space. And it's just kind of like this unwritten rule. So they did this study and they tested to see um, how long it would take for a guy to pee in a urinal when another person is standing very close to them versus like say near the bathroom entrance. And it doesn't have anything to do with like, I guess a societal norm or anything. It's just, it has to do with personal space and it's more behavioral and evolutionary than anything. And it's actually a pretty interesting study because it gives um, 
a written explanation to why guys do this unspoken kind of rule. So question being of being a guy myself, when it comes to the urinal rule and such, does it change when there is dividers put up in place of the urinals or does that overlapping of personal space still happen? I can't go into this. I'm kind of laughing at this because it is a funny topic to talk about. Um, I'm not an expert by no means, but I would say the dividers give a sense of a wall that's being put up. So that would change your personal space. It's almost as if you have more privacy. Uh, the whole idea of personal space is like, you know, comfort, comfortability and how much privacy you're really getting. When you have somebody invading that, you feel like everything's out in the open and you're being exposed. So your fight or flight's being triggered and you're more aware of that person. So I guess it's really up to personal preference if those dividers really work or not. Um, but I guess the question I should ask to you guys is how would this differ from prey to predator when it comes to personal space? I know we've talked about fight or flight, but I want to hear your guys's. So how would it differ from prey to predator when it comes to personal space? Yeah. When it comes to having a predator and prey, for example, I believe that both are on alert and on guard when it comes to personal space. I know that evolutionarily, when you have, say, a lizard and a hawk, a lizard has a smaller range of personal space, but at the same time, if it feels threatened that its personal space is being invaded, it will flee the scene. Same thing if you have a hawk. If you invade a hawk's personal space, the hawk is going to flee the scene. No animal wants to take that risk of fighting when there is no necessity to fight it. I agree. Unless they're backed in a corner, I guess. Because then they'll fight or flight. And Be if they're backed in a corner and they have nowhere else to run and their personal space is being invaded so much, essentially, yes, they would have to fight back because they have nowhere else to run, nowhere else to flee to. And because of those walls or whatever it may be that's being put up, their personal space, is, as opposed to having this like 360 bubble they pretty much have, it's being pushed down to even a 90 degree or 180. Like there's only one means of escape. They don't have that other means of, I guess they don't have the other means to, to, to of, they don't have the other option. Yeah, the other option, the the idea of being free. They're more confined and closed in. If you back something into a corner, they don't have as many routes to escape, and they don't have, like they're they're comfortable. They're comfortable. I can't speak right now, but their comfortable comfortability is going to shift. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, okay, so we did touch on this idea of body maps and personal space and how it has changed across countries uh, because Madeline brought it up. But I guess what would you guys say that accounts for this? Um, I know we talked about how we're able to let more humans in, but across countries, even relationships and even like genders, there's a different level of like how much you can actually have physical contact with a person. Okay, so from a societal construct and societal point of view, if you take American society and compare it to European society, for example, compare it to Finland, I believe that was read in the article, that was studied in the article. So compare European society to an American society. American society is very individualistic, meaning we, we 
function more individualism. We do things by ourselves. We do things for ourselves, that type of thing. Where compared to European society, it's more of a teamwork concept. You help out those around you. You uh, learn from those around you. You don't really mind who is in your personal space or your personal bubble compared to an American society. And I believe it sort of has to do with the thing with the, in, in individualistic societies, you it, it's everyone for themselves, right? So it would make sense to put up that personal bubble, put up that personal space to compare it. If you're not, if, if you're raised in a society where this isn't the case, you wouldn't. I also think it's just interesting how, you know, um, taking what Michael said, comparing those to American and European society, how I've heard lots of people who um, are American who have traveled from, you know, the United States to a European country and have noticed that shift and difference. And obviously they are so not used to it. And, you know, I guess kind of uncomfortable with it, how touchy they are or how like open they are with like strangers and greeting and stuff like that, you know, like going in for a kiss or, you know, just like so much of that personal space kind of being, I guess, invaded to the um, American, you know, who isn't used to it. Yep. And I would have to agree that our perception of how things are done in America versus how things are done in Europe is completely different due to us being more individual individualistic than uh, uh, a more of a what what did you call it michael it was uh more of a group work kind of mentality group work teamwork um more of a collective collective okay um but it even varies across genders they did this study and everyone was okay with being touched in the hand like you know a handshake high five whatever it may be it seems as Ever since we were younger as kids, uh, the hands were an okay area to interact with. But what was surprising is, well, actually not really surprising coming from a guy myself, guys don't like being touched that much as compared to girls who are more huggy and emotional and they're more they're more interactive with each other, I guess I should say. Guys, we tend to you know, keep to the hands and that's about it. They don't really hug. They don't really express their emotions. And that may be, may be more cultural, but it also is evolutionary because evolution-wise, the male of the you know, species or of the animal type is the one to be on guard and on defense because they are the um, defender in that case. So they always have their guard up which could relate to how much you interact with them and how like how much they like being touched. And that's just stemmed from um, biological traits that have just carried over now into our cultural norms. So speaking on an evolutionary level and speaking with the gender norms about how women compared to men don't mind with the touchiness and the feeliness, when for guys the reason it's different is back in society back in the neolithic and homo sapien age the the man is usually the hunter and the protector right. of the sad group so going out there the reason there's no touching or anything is when your personal space is invaded and when you have that sense of fear that sense of urge the thing is the idea is to either run or fight back 
Now, this is just stemmed over and over and over to where we're in today's society is the same situation. Yep. Yep. And we haven't really gotten rid of it because it's more of an evolutionary type trait than it is cultural. Um, do you guys have any last final comments to add in this topic? I mean, it's pretty interesting to me personally how you can invade one's personal space and they may not be comfortable with it, but now you're a part of their body and brain map because mm -hmm. you're an object constantly moving among inanimate objects and you're constantly shifting your place in their brain, which is why they would have a more heightened awareness of you. Yeah, I agree. I definitely think it's very interesting how it's kind of an unconscious thing as well, you know, that we don't really take into account, you know, every minute of the day, but over time, you know, it begins to shift. Yeah, our relation in the, I guess, universe and the world among our relation to other objects and how close or far away they may be and exactly what we come in contact and what we, you know, touch on a daily basis, we don't tend to think about. We don't, um, and I guess it's it's something to think about and ponder, be more aware of in the future because there's, there's always an explanation to, you know, why we're able to traverse a maze of or a room full of objects in the middle of the night mm -hmm. when there's no lights pretty easily as we would be in the day. Mm -hmm. So yeah, just some interesting little stuff to talk, uh, to talk about in the next subject or topic, we will talk about perception and action after this short little break. Hi everyone, we're back and we've been talking about perception and action for this topic, specifically about how companies are changing the shape, feel, and size of a product to better conform to us perceptually so that product is picked more so than another product. We also be talking about the quiet eye, what exactly the quiet eye is and how we can become more aware of it. Um, but first, let us talk about action affordances, what action affordances are and how that relates to the buying and selling of products and their change over time from how that product initially was. So Michael, what was your take on the first article that talked about how companies are changing products and playing at um, the psychology? So it was really interesting to me because I never really realized how much we've perceive certain objects and how much companies have an effect in that. So for example, uh, when it comes to laundry baskets and such, they have certain grips on the sides and they have a, a curvature. We perceive that as easy and accessible as a grippy material. And it's interesting because the company had an effect in doing that and in changing that. And for example, with the Coca-Cola bottle, how it changed from the glass bottles to the more curvy plastic bottle. And it all had to do with the our, our grip, and it was better accessible to us. Nice. Very good. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, it is definitely – the companies are definitely playing at the idea of what would, be, better, what would be the most and easiest accessible for use to the customer and what would feel the best. Um, we'll touch on that in a little bit, but Justin, I want to hear what your opinion of this. I want to hear your opinion of this um, article. I thought it was quite interesting because I've heard something of a similar study, and it was done through McDonald's, not study, but it was McDonald's, and it wasn't necessarily of the physical touch, but more so of the taste sensation, where they changed their fries to taste have a certain protein from meat that 
creates a taste that is different than that of a fry, but creates a high sense of euphoria in us. And that's really what I related it to when I looked at it. But I, like Michael, I have noticed over time that products have changed and it feels a lot more ergonomic. It's a lot more pleasing. Necessarily, I don't think I have, I haven't really felt an affinity towards it off the top of my head, but I definitely see the appeal of something that is, fits my hand a lot nicer. Yeah, I agree too. I actually took a PR class in high school and we learned a lot about this and just how much marketing plays into our daily lives and what we see at the stores, even when they place items, you know, ahead, you know, right at the entrance or exit as we're leaving. So we're more susceptible and more, you know, in tune to what they are and why they're placed there and want to grab it and things like that. And also just how much marketing um, plays a role in that. And also, I feel like it's very unconscious, too, when you're looking at certain items and objects that you want to purchase. So I just think that's really interesting. Also, um, I would just like to input real quick. Uh, Justin had to step out, so he will not be joining us for the last little bit of this podcast. But, and part of that, that was a door slamming. Um, but what companies are doing is they are playing on this idea of action affordances, which is that certain visual properties of objects automatically activate our motor slash action system, specifically ones that signify the object's capacity for interaction. And then such properties are referred to as the object's action affordance. So, so perceptually, we see, an, we see two objects, a cylinder, a mug that looks like a normal mug, how you would see it, and then a mug that has a more curved downward appearance that looks slimmer and it looks like it'd be more pleasing um, on the hand, we would actually go and pick up the mug that looks more pleasing towards our hand and use that mug as opposed to a normal mug just by the look of it and knowing physically that it would just fit better and conform better to our hand. It was also shown in a study that people were given a wooden spoon and a rubber spatula and they were just told to pick up the object, not to cook with it or anything, but just to simply pick it up. And people went with the object that they were best used to, that felt better, and it was the rubber spatula. It wasn't the wooden spoon because we typically assume that wood's going to be thicker, it's going to be harder, it's not going to feel like rubber, which is more malleable. Um and to me, it's just very interesting how consumerism and companies are, are actually playing on this. We know about the psychology of advertisement, how certain colors, how certain auditory stimuli and even visual stimuli play into what we see on TV, reading newspapers, or even seeing in the store. But now they're actually touching on and getting the physical aspect of an object and changing that. And they're playing on this idea of action affordance, like I've said before. So, Michael, what is your take on that? So, <clears throat> my take on action affordance, something that we would perceive as more uh, comfortable and not hard and rugged, uh, comes with phones. Phones back in the day used to be large and bulky, think of landlines, pay phones, even the mobile phones, they were significantly larger. Well, then came along, for example, the iPhone. The iPhone ever since has gone down to a very, very slick size, very sleek and long size. It has become more comfortable to the human body. Sure, there are still phones out there like the old, 
old ones back in the day, but we perceive the slicker, slimmer design as the more comforting. Yeah, I definitely think it's interesting how we've come such a long way from, like what Michael said, um, the bigger, bulkier phones into what we have now. It's small, it's easy to fit in our hand, in our pocket, take it where, take it wherever we go, and everything like that. So it's definitely just very interesting how we've come such a long way. And even like he said also about the Coca-Cola bottles, how they went from a glass bottle into a kind of curvy sort of uh, plastic bottle. So I just think that's something that's very interesting. Uh, another thing I want to touch on, at least from my personal experience of it, uh, for two things. The first one is, so you guys know about how I want to say five years ago now, or maybe a little less than that, they came out with these shoes that looked exactly like your feet. Like they had the little slits in the feet and everything. Well, the, the feet shoes. Yeah, whatever their name was for it. But you know what I'm talking yes. about. It looked like it looked like just a, a covering for your feet. Yep. Didn't look like how shoes were or how they were supposed to be. A lot of people bought those shoes because they looked like feet. So they automatically perceived what they saw. They saw a, a shoe that looked like a foot and thought, hey, this is going to be more comfortable because it's more streamlined and easier on my foot, and it's not going to be as bulky, so I'm going to try it out. I personally have never had any experience with it, but I knew when I was like 8 years old, 10 years old, I wanted some of those, but I never had the chance to get them because they ended up getting not the best reviews and people kept with what they were used to, which is how we would normally depict a shoe as. But again, it's companies playing on this. Our, our, it's, there's companies playing on our perception. They're playing on action affordances, which will, what will get consumers to use that product more? How will it, how will it shape and the way it looks change how many we sell? So, uh, it's interesting you bring up, for example, the feet shoes. My thought on this is when it comes to Crocs, right? They're not the most appealing in looks, but what they do have is they're made for comfort. They're made to be really comfortable compared to, say, a shoe like Nike, Adidas, or Asics would make. Even though those shoes are comfortable, many people would perceive the rubber of the Crocs as being more comfortable than the normal shoe now is that because they've just found a material that's more malleable than other materials i mean i have a pair of shoes called hey dudes and we're gonna keep talking about shoes because that's the best i can use but hey dudes is made out of recyclable material and it's one of the ugliest looking shoes out there but they're very very comfortable with what they're made out of and they're essentially made out of a type of recycled plastic and as we know plastic just feels better to the to the hands, so I guess, uh, and to the touch, so I guess companies just found that material and they've made it soft enough to where it's not like leather, it's not like uh, dense fabric or wood even, it's it's very soft, easy to move, easy to use, so how does this play in with consumerism and companies' um, logic of tapping into our perception and using action affordances. I think it also, I think with that being said, it has a lot to do with the aim of what the company is going for. And like, you know, Michael used an example with Crocs. Crocs are aimed towards comfort. They're aimed towards, you know, just having that easy to wear, slip on type of shoe. 
and um, with the holes in it too, just, you know, so your feet can breathe, everything like that. All of it is aimed towards comfort, towards comfort. Whereas with Asics or Adidas or Nike, those shoes are aimed towards, you know, sports like running and cleats. And they sell, they sell shoes that aren't as comfortable, but that's because they have a different aim towards what they're selling in a different group, I guess you could say. So I guess going off what you were saying, Maddie, um, companies are playing on the specific action that we want to get out of that product and going specifically with that set action, kind of like how milk jugs are changing their size and shape. I know if you got going by a milk jug from Sam's Club compared to Walmart or Meyer, which has the normal type of a milk jug that you would see for um, gallons, it's, it's better for pouring because it's more streamlined, it's taller, it's in a more cylinder type of shape. So you would automatically assume it's better for pouring. So you're going to like more, more than likely go with that one at Sam's Club as opposed to Walmart, Meyer, Costco, wherever it may be. Um, so I guess they're just companies are playing on this. They're, they're finding a set action they want to use and marketing their product around that action. Definitely. Which is basically this whole concept of action of force right. because Right. So, uh, sorry, don't mean to interrupt, but look at Simply Lemonade. Simply Lemonade, they are very streamlined and cylinder in the top, but then they go to a square base near the bottom. <laughs> the reason they're so streamlined is the first instinct in the human mind is since it's slick, it's streamlined, it's cylinder shape, immediately grab that because that's how most people would grab that bottle and put that in their car. It's very easily accessible as opposed to getting a two-gallon regular jug of lemonade or a two-gallon regular jug of orange juice. So I guess it's just giving it, companies are playing on this idea perceptually that it's giving us the best outcome, right? It's giving us the best outcome so that we have the action of pouring that liquid into uh, a glass and it's, it feels the best in our hand. If you take a, a carton of milk, a old rectangular carton of milk and compare it to a half gallon of milk, you're going to choose the half gallon, not only because it has a little handle, but also because two, one, it's made out of plastic and two, it's, feels better in the hand because the plastic conforms more around the hand. Mm -hmm. So I think what's mo most interesting too, is just that it's unconscious in our minds. Like we don't instantly think, Oh, I like that because it fits well in my, I don't like, I like that, you know, a jug of orange juice because it fits well in my hand. That's not anybody's first thought. We look at it and it's unconscious to us of that thought. We just look at it and we want to buy it because we enjoy orange juice. And I don't think that's like, but we want to buy it because we want to pour, we want to drink that orange juice because we enjoy it, right? Yeah. But the, the, the thing behind that is it's getting us the best action. We're going to pour that orange juice into a container or glass or whatever it may be and drink out of that glass, mm -hmm. or you're going to drink straight from the container of orange juice itself. But you're getting the best outcome with, for your action, and your action is how good that orange juice is at, is at pouring without the, you know, the most spill or anything. Mm -hmm. um, we're actually going to move on now and we're going to touch on the quiet eye and what exactly the quiet eye is. So the quiet eye is basically that I can visualize and focus my attention on where I want a ball or object to go and then my body will follow and that ball will go where I wanted it to go. Now, this isn't some hidden talent that everyone, that a select group of people has. You can learn it. Anyone can learn it. 
It just takes time, and it's basically fixating your mind on a specific goal you want to accomplish, and then your body following up with that goal. So it's, again, you're perceiving, and then you're acting upon it. So I guess what I should jump into is, what's your thoughts on the article that you read, Maddie? I think it is something that's really interesting, too, and like Patrick said, anybody can learn it. Like In the article, it stated that children with disorders and um, children without disorders were both put together, and the children with disorders were taught the quiet eye technique, whereas the other children were taught a normal technique, and in the end, the results came out to be that the children with the quiet eye technique performed much better. It was a tennis ball technique. They were throwing a tennis ball at the wall and then um, catching it back. So they use a different technique, the children with disorders, and they perform much better than the other children. So I just think that was something that was very interesting. I don't think it was necessarily technique as it was a an addition to what they were already practicing. They were told to fixate their, because the technique is more physical, they were told to fixate their gaze on a specific area and then catch that ball back. They were they were they were fixing their mind towards a goal, mm-hmm. and getting that goal, or they were fixating their mind towards that goal, and their body was acting in a response due to that fixation. It wasn't like they were specifically um, looking at the uh, wall and thinking, "Oh, this ball, I'm going to automatically catch it." But at the same time, perceiving all of the other stimuli around. So when talking about the quiet eye. Um... As a tennis player, this is interesting because all throughout tennis, we I have been told to, when it comes to hitting the ball, to keep my eye on the ball, watch the ball hit the racket strings, hit the ball, and then just keep my head fixated until I do a full swing through. Well, this is interesting to me because is it the quiet eye at hand that is acting because I want the ball to go into a specific way. I watch the ball. I know where it's going to land and I go through with the motion. I would say no, because if you think about the pros like Roger Federer or Rafael Nadal or whoever else, they know the ball's coming at them. They simply just act because they have a specific goal in mind where they want that ball to go. The quiet eye only happens a millisecond before the action and a millisecond after the action. So it's not like they immediately, they're always fixing their gaze on that specific target or specific goal. It's an immediately, it's an immediate thought that happens and processes through their mind. And then they just act upon that thought, but it's a goal oriented and goal focused thought or perception. Um, so what are your guys' experiences with the quiet eye? My experience with quiet eye would have to come from tennis, uh, Again, so this would have to do with serving. Uh, when it came to serving, I the way tennis is set up, you have two service boxes, and then you have the uh, box behind the service boxes. And when it came to serving, you would have to serve diagonally. So my thought was that I would want to hit the ball in the tee, and I would act upon that thought without actually looking at the ball itself or the motion that I was doing. I just acted upon it. Perfect, perfect. Yeah, I agree too. And also, um, my, you know, relation to it actually is closely with the article itself and basketball. I played basketball for quite a while when I was younger and, uh, playing basketball, you have to act quick. It's a very fast paced type of game. And so when, you know, you're being pressured or something like that and you have to make that shot, 
you have to look at the ball and just act upon it. You have to look at the shot at the rim and just act upon it right away. So, so I guess, do you guys believe that everybody has the ability to unlock the quiet eye? Yes. Yeah. Do you believe practice helps with the quiet eye? Because obviously someone who's far better with practice and technique is going to perform more, more likely going to be able to perform more than someone who just relies upon the quiet eye. Well, you just answer your own question. So yes. Yes. Okay. Um, I guess we can be, uh, do you guys believe that we can become more aware of it by just acknowledging that we can focus on a specific goal, fixate our gaze to that goal and our body will follow? No, it's an unconscious thought. You don't, I don't believe it's an unconscious I, thought. Yeah, I agree. I think it's more You're consciously conscious. making the decision to look at that area. See, I believe it's an unconscious thought because the more you would focus on the quiet eye, it takes away from the aspect of the quiet eye itself. But like he said also, it's a very split-second yeah, decision. So you're not really thinking about it for that long. So it's, it's more consciously than anything. Yes. Um, the last topic I want to get into is what we've been talking about for both of these uh, topic and article-related topics what is this bi-directional relationship between perception and action that we're seeing? Do you believe that perception and action share and influence each other? Yes. That one cannot happen without the other? Yes. In order to do an action, you have to perceive the actions happening. In order for the action to happen, you have to perceive that it's happening. Yes. That I completely agree with that mm -hmm. 100%. That you know you can you can perceive something to happen and then follow it up with an action. But you cannot act on something that you're not perceiving because even a blind person can make an action, but because they're perceiving differently than someone who can perceive visual stimuli. So first off, I just want to say thank you guys for participating in this podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, that is all the time we have for today. And I will see you guys around. And I hope you guys uh, listening enjoy this and enjoy the time we spent on this podcast and learn something new today. And you know, thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to us.